The question I have for this evening is how do we get from here to there? What is left for us before we can see him face to face? What I'm going to share with you this evening, I have not shared with very many people. So you, I don't know if that means you're the favored few or if you're cursed, but at any rate, you're going to hear something that I haven't shared often, and the reason is that um, I'm just a little scared of this. I'm scared of what I sense God is leading me to do, but at the same time, I want to be sensitive to his leading and his timing, because I feel that timing is so crucial. I think that one of the things that lies between us here and him there is something that we have not talked about much in recent years. When I was a child in Oregon, I heard a lot about the three angels' messages and that we were the people of the three angels. In fact, in the 70s, they seemed to be putting logos of three angels everywhere, everywhere from St. Albans, England, to... Uh, churches to institutions and so on in our logos and then it dropped out and the cross took its place as our logo I would like to talk not about the three angels message but about the fourth angel I think we've already talked about the three angels messages this weekend in fact there's been three sermons and and maybe if you mix them up a little bit it would be something like um, sermon one was the first angel sermon two was the third angel and sermon three was the second angel, so they were a little mixed up. The one I want to talk about is the fourth angel, which is found in Revelation 18. Ellen White has several things to say about this angel. She calls it the fourth angel. She says it is to unite with the third angel, and actually with all three angels, to proclaim the loud cry of the third angel, which is to brighten the earth with his glory. And she said it began in 1888. Something halted it. And here we are today. As a child, I heard a lot about Babylon and what Babylon was and and is and so on. And um, I was not sure of any of it, although at the times that I heard it, I, I believed it. And I think that everything I heard is partially the truth. But I had a continual discontent and continual curiosity. What really is in this message? I had the feeling that we didn't really know fully. And uh, I remember when I was in college, finding a key, and that led me to even more curiosity. And I remember when I taught in Hong Kong for three years in the 80s, I taught Daniel in Revelation. And the more I probed and poked that key, the more it turned locks and doors and opened doors for me. And I thought, you know, someday I'm going to have to study what Babylon really is, historically. And I thought, well, I'm going to get a doctoral degree in New Testament, and then after that I've got to learn Akkadian. Akkadian is an ancient cuneiform Babylonian language. Cuneiform is a syllabic type language, something like Chinese. You have many, many signs. It's a very complicated language. Um, it's kind of like a wedge script language. And they wrote it in clay tablets. So I thought, I'll get a New Testament doctorate, and then I'll study Akkadian, and then I'll get to the root of this whole dilemma in my mind about what is Babylon. And God had a different plan. He just kind of smiled. And he led me through a bulletin at the Graduate Theological Union to pick a program called the Joint Doctoral Program. He led me there because I didn't have a Master of Divinity. I only had a Master of Arts. And the program that I wanted to get into in New Testament demanded a two-year master's. I only had a one-year master's. I knew they wanted a Master of Divinity. And so I was looking for something I could use my one-year master's for, and I turned to this program. It was called the Joint Program in Ancient Near Eastern Religions. And I read it, and I said, well, that sounds really fascinating, and I think I can do New Testament with that. And so I applied. I had to apply both to Graduate Theological Union and the University of California, Considerable process, but I got accepted, which I think was something of a miracle. And uh, I remember my first interview with my advisor. He nearly kicked me out of the program because I was a Seventh-day Adventist return missionary. To him, I was a fundamentalist, Bible-pounding, 
radical. <clears throat> and uh, I had to stand my ground and, and persuade him otherwise. Then he looked at what I wanted to do and said, you can't do that in this program. You can't do New Testament. That's outside this field. You've got to do something in Old Testament. You've got to completely rework your program. Well, that didn't mean just completely reworking my program. It meant completely reworking my mind. Because I'd been planning on New Testament. So I went home and I thought, nah, there's no single book in the Old Testament that I really prefer concentrating a lot of time on. I like the whole, book, the whole Old Testament as a whole, but no one book stands out except Job. So I put Job down. And I looked at the program some more and I thought, well... It says, ancient Near Eastern religions, it says I can do Mesopotamia stuff. And somehow the light came on. It was like, oh, God knew this nagging question in my mind about what is Babylon. And uh, apparently he wants me to do something about it. So I put down as my major ancient Near Eastern law. And one of my minors was Sumero-Babylonian religions. The other minor involved Job. Went back, submitted it to him, said, that's great. Now you'll have to learn Akkadian. It's amazing how the Lord leads, and I'm still working on my doctorate. I'm working on a dissertation in Job. But I have learned a lot about Babylon. And it was like doing a giant jigsaw puzzle without a picture to go by. <laughs> um, finding a piece here that fit a piece here, and another piece here, and just trying to work around it. And I think I have something of a picture, though I intend to probe it even more deeply in the future. So let's focus on Revelation 18 tonight. What is Babylon? How has it fallen? And what does it mean to come out of it? Um, if you were to stand on the streets of New York, say Hyde Park, you know that famous place where they have soapboxes? If you were to stand on the soapbox and shout, Babylon has fallen, fallen is that great city, come out of her, my people, what response would you get? Did I hear you say Baghdad has fallen? Did they get Saddam? What does it mean to shout in this modern day, Babylon has fallen? Isn't that kind of anachronistic? I mean, Babylon fell how many millennia ago? about 2,000 years ago? And why shall Babylon has fallen now? That's what I want to find out tonight. And as we look at this, I think it will become clear. I'll just give you one hint. Babylon is foundational to everything we think, do, say, are in our society today. It is the root of modern civilization. And more than that, it is extremely foundational to how we see God in our society. So, chapter 18, verse 1, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his splendor. Who is this angel? Now, the three angels are flying in mid-heaven. Right? This angel comes down out of heaven and he has great authority. Who could he be? Well, if you turn back to Revelation 10, this is now reviewing Daniel Revelation. I hope some of you have a background for this. Revelation 10 talks about another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. We have usually interpreted this angel as Christ. And this chapter signals the beginning of the last movement. So what you have probably is a parenthesis here. Chapter 10 to chapter 18, the last movement. And the climax of that movement is chapter 18, and another angel comes down from heaven again, having great authority, and the earth is made bright with his splendor. Who would it be? Christ. So you have this inclusio here. Chapter 10 to 18. And that means this message is extremely important. And in this case, extremely illuminating. The earth was made bright with its splendor. 
called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, and so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And the chapter goes on. We're not going to read the whole chapter because it would take much too long. The chapter goes on to talk about, verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. And then the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And it lists that cargo, which, by the way, is very significant. And the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of a torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Verse 23 tells us who these merchants were. For your merchants were the magnates, that is, the great men of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery and in you was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who have been slaughtered in the earth, including Jesus Christ. What is Babylon? I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson this evening because I don't know how else to share this with you. As I mentioned earlier, the most ancient civilization was Mesopotamia. The first people to be there, as far as we can tell, were the Sumerians, all quickly followed by the Akkadians. And there came to be two places known as Sumer and Akkad. The Shinar, the plain of Shinar in the Bible, is simply the Hebrew form of Sumer. So Shinar represents the land of the Sumerians. Now, when the people began to settle in Mesopotamia, they came down from the hills, they began to settle in the plain. They were originally gatherers and hunters. Um, that wasn't just because they were men. <laughs> um, they, that was simply the way originally it was. They didn't have to develop agriculture yet because they were spread out. There was enough people for the land to support them. Now, you remember from Genesis uh, 11 that they gathered together in one place and they built a city and they said, let us make us a name. And God didn't like that. He wanted them scattered. Why did he want them scattered? Well, let's follow the history of the Mesopotamians and see if we can understand. Because they wanted to be together and they wanted power, they stayed in this one place, and that meant the land could no longer support them. And so they attempted agriculture. Now, the problem is that that area, the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers and around, could not grow agriculture without an extensive canal system for irrigation. And so that meant they had to dig canals. Well, that turned into problems because it was a lot of work, and it was hard work, and the people didn't like that hard work. And so they developed, in the process of developing agriculture, they developed what we know as economy. Now, I know that we need economy. We can't live without it now, and we can't turn the clock back and go back to being hunters and gatherers. That would never work on this planet. So when I talk about these things, I'm building you a foundation and a background, and then we'll get into the theology. They developed systems of economy, buying and selling, trade. And, and the interesting thing is that in developing economy, they changed our value system. Um, let me tell it like this. One Babylonian went to another and said, I have ten sheep and you have three donkeys. I want a donkey and I'm willing to give you some of my sheep for that donkey. And the other Babylonian scratched his head and said, Sounds like a deal. I'll take three of your sheep. Oh, no, no, no. That's too much. Two sheep for one donkey. And they argued and they dickered and finally they couldn't cut the third sheep in half. So the guy who wanted more got his way. He got three sheep for one donkey. 
Now tell me, do three sheep equal one donkey? Is that real? Well, <clears throat> the Babylonian who got the three sheep uh, had a son. The son grew up. I, I'm making this story up. I'm just doing it to illustrate the point I want to make. The son wanted to buy the, the full of the donkey back. Or I should say ass. Donkeys don't produce donkeys. We'll use ass. He wanted to buy the full of the ass that he had sold for the three sheep. He wanted to get that full back. So he went to this man, whose now son was running the estate, and he said, you know, I'd like to buy your ass there. They're full. Uh, how much would you require? And he scratched his head and he said, well, you now have ten sheep. I'll take four sheep. Four sheep? Now, wait a minute. Your dad gave my dad three sheep for the ass that produced this fool. I wanted three sheep. I'll give you three. No, it's four. Why four? This foal is more, is sturdier and will give you more than the, than the mother. And so, that happened. Now, how is it that in one time period, a, a, an ass could be worth three sheep and in another time period it could be worth four? We call that inflation, don't we? But is it real? Is it real? By the way, inflation was very common in ancient Mesopotamia. We have many, many economic tablets that tell us this. Um, eventually, they did cost uh, accounting, where they would sell a field, not for just the field itself, but the labor involved, the amount it took to feed the, the labor, amount it took to feed the horses or, or the animals that pl did the plowing and so on. It was all cows to county. And so you have one period where the figures are very low and suddenly they jump enormously because they've, ju they've switched uh, ways of accounting instead of the regular method. They went to cows to county. Well, they developed the systems of economy. And then not only did they manage to make fake amounts equaling things, you know, one thing can equal another as though that could be true, they came to see people as worth something. And they got tired of digging canals, and so they found that people who couldn't pay their debts were in a bind, you know. How do you make a person pay up when they don't have the money? Ah, come dig my canal. And that was the beginning of what we have come to call slavery. Debt slavery. Well, pretty soon, they started something, and the, and the surrounding peoples, especially the Gudians from the hills, looked down on the plain of Shinar, and they said, my, those people are getting rich down there. You know, we could use some of that wealth up here. It's not fair for them to have all that wealth. And so they came down and made raids. War is an ancient form of plunder. It was done for economic purposes. Well, with the threat of war now on the backs of the Sumerians and the Akkadians, they needed someone to lead them into battle, someone who could really help them get the victory, because this was a constant threat. And there arose what they came to be called heroes or great men. You remember Nimrod? Now Nimrod was the first to be a mighty man. He was a great hunter, hunting, all that went along with being a mighty man. You had to show your prowess before you went into battle by going out and killing a lion or some other animal that might attack you. That's the way you showed that you could lead into battle. He was the first to become a mighty man, and he was a great mighty hunter. And the beginning of his kingdom was Uruk, Akkad, Babylon, and from there, he went to, China, to Assyria and Nineveh, Kala, and Rezin. Those are the beginnings of something that came to be called a king. Now, you have to understand how this worked. Once a hero led an army into battle and conquered, he was supposed to lay down his hero ship after he got home. They would do the celebration, and then what was to happen is that they would 
go back to what was called the assembly. The assembly of the town, or the city-state, was what made the decisions of the town. They decided all the legal matters, all the economic matters, and other matters that pertain to the town. And they did it in a kind of in a sense of what one scholar calls primitive democracy. It was kind of the earliest form of democracy we have in civilization. The problem is that some of these heroes that led armies into war didn't want to lay down their heroship. They didn't want to give up being a king. And we have mythologies built up around these men that show that they kind of held on to it as long as they could. And eventually they gained some power, became known as a lord of a town or a township. And finally, they became known as the Lugal, the great man, known in Akkadian as Sharu, or king. That was the beginning of kingship. Now, you have an additional problem of the breakdown of human value. You have someone who's bigger and better and stronger and wiser than anyone else, who can exercise power over other people. So that now you have this problem of pride and low self-esteem, which, by the way, is the great manic, depressive, spiritual psychosis we all have. We need self-esteem in order to function. If we lose it, we get low self-esteem. The problem is that it becomes a fixative, a kind of addictive type of thing where I need, I become proud, but pride easily leads to a fall, and so I lack self-esteem, and so I need another fix of pride to fix that, and I keep getting more pride to make up for my lack of self-esteem, and pretty soon the two come together, and the most miserable person in the world is the person who has a lot of power, but is scared to death of losing it. That is the whole fall of Lucifer. That's the whole paradigm. And that's what kingship really is built on. It's this kind of value system that says some people are better than others and some people are worse. Well, with the coming of kingly power, there came the problem of how to deal with these economic measures. And more and more, people began to realize that you can't find people who are honest. How do you make sure that you get your fair deal, fair and square? And as the assemblies began to get more and more people agitated and bringing lawsuits against people who weren't paying up or whatever, there came to be the need for economic measures. And uh, there was a very ancient king whose name I can barely pronounce, Uru-Inam-Kina, who was the first to develop economic reform. That was the foundation of ancient Near Eastern law. Following kings made laws, kind of built on Uru-Inam-Kina's reforms. And that became the three-part system of ancient and modern civilization, economy, kingship, and law. All of those measures are what I would call externalistic in nature. Now, what I think was going on, and the reason the Bible highlights the Tower of Babel story, and, and by the way, maybe what we should do is turn to that, turn to uh, Genesis 11 for just a minute. I find that so many answers to Revelation are found in Genesis, which I find to be interesting. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. It is followed immediately by what? The call of Abram. Abram is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was Sumer, ancient Sumer. Southern Mesopotamia. He was called out of Sumer to become a king? No. To become the father of a great multitude in whom all families, note the stress on families, all families of the earth would be blessed. 
You see, God's original model for society was a family model. He never intended that human beings rule over one another and exercise power over one another. He never intended that we buy and sell one another. He never intended that we become materialistic and our value system becomes such that we now refer to people in terms of how much they're worth or how much they do produce as though they were machines. God wanted us to have the, in, the image of God, the individuality, the power to think and to do, to create. He never intended the threefold system of Babylon. That was Satan's invention in order to abuse and misrepresent God. This was his attempt to say, this is my system. This is how I think God should run the universe. Remember, he claimed to be improving on God's government. So it's in the context of the developments that happen in Mesopotamia that God calls Abraham out of that, not to be a king, not to be an economist, although Abraham was a very wealthy man, not to be a lawyer, though I'm sure he was consulted about certain matters pertaining to what we would call legal matters. God called him to be the father of a great multitude so that through his descendants all families of the earth could be blessed. In other words, to reinstate and reemphasize the family model. And, and Abraham did a great job. Remember how he treated Lot? He treated Lot exceptionally to anybody would in, that anyone would in the ancient Near East. Very exceptional behavior. Look at how he treated Sarah. That is the model God was trying to reinstate. The call of Abraham to come out of the premier of Babylon, the, the forerunner of Babylon, is kind of a type. It's followed through time and again in the Bible. Several places in the Old Testament bring it up and finally climaxes in Revelation. As a result of the Babylonians developing economy, kingship, and law, values continued to deteriorate. People became human resources. I must confess, I wince when I think of the fact that many personnel departments today are called human resources. People have become equated with dollars. They became worth what they produced. And that led to substitutionalism as a norm. In other words, equating X equals Y without any reason for it other than our make-believe system of economy. And with kingship, the values continue to deteriorate that some are better, stronger, wiser than others. Some are worse, weaker, more stupid. And this led to an entire class system. Babylon was famous under Hammurabi. It was famous for its classism. In other words, the more power that a king had, which under Hammurabi, it, kingship probably rose to new heights, the more you have a class system. You have the slaves. And you have people who aren't quite free, the, what is called the Mushkanim. We've never been able to figure out what they really were. But they were not free men. The free men were called Awilum. And, of course, women are somewhere out of that system. So you have this class system. People can be classified, can be separated, can be treated unequally. So that the punishments were the least severe if you mistreated a slave and most severe if you mistreated a wawilum. With the laws and the legal system that developed, with the protection of economics, it was to protect people who owned things, not victims. It was based on the idea that people could be externally controlled and that punishment makes people right. By law, I, the better, the stronger, and the wiser, can control you, the worse, the weaker, and the more ignorant. And laws eventually became more important than people, which is why Jesus had to say, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, when you think about that, he was really attacking the foundation of, of all of the legal systems. And I'm going to insert something here. I don't have it in my notes. But I may elaborate on it later if I have time. 
I have studied what led to the crucifixion of Christ, what could lead a Jewish nation to reject their Messiah. You see, they went to Babylon, and that was part of God's plan. It was better than human sacrifices that they were offering. But they got contaminated while there. There were supposed to be lights to the Babylonians, but they got contaminated. And Ellen White says they came back with many distortions in their understanding of God. Every part of the scenario that led to the crucifixion of Christ can be traced to Babylon. The Sanhedrin, or the assembly, parallels the Babylonian assembly. Um, they're understanding that oral law was more important than written law, and so they developed all these oral laws that we sometimes call the Mishnah, those laws for the Sabbath and so on, is Babylonian in, in origin. Uh, the regard for the Sabbath as a taboo day, a day where you don't do this and you don't do that, that is Babylonian origin. Babylonians had evil days. They called them evil days, uh, Umi Lemuti. They were four in number originally, or five, and they were basically spaced seven days apart. And those were days where you didn't do certain things that might offend the gods. Now, if you study the Old Testament Sabbath, you don't find a lot of that. You find some things you weren't supposed to do, and God did use some strong measures for the man who picked up sticks. That had to do with more of defiance than it had to do, I think, with the Sabbath. But the basic element of the Sabbath is the celebration, is friendship with God, is taking care of people. Read Isaiah 58, for example. And it was the perversion that they gained from Babylon that led them to add all of these Sabbath laws, the Sabbath. And, of course, when Jesus came along and deliberately broke them, which, by the way, he did. Remember when he healed the man who was born blind? He broke five Sabbath laws to heal him, quite deliberately. He spat on the ground. That was the breaking a law. Um, they, they weren't to spit on the ground lest a blade of grass grow. He then molded clay in his hands. You weren't to do that because that was molding, like for pottery. He then anointed the man above the, head, uh, the, above the neck, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. He then told the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. You weren't supposed to wash your face on Sabbath. Not only that, but he sent him to the pool of Siloam. Now, I have reason to believe because this man was blind and probably a beggar that he was near the temple. Just around the temple corner was the pool of Bethany where a lot of healings were supposed to have taken place. Jesus didn't send him to the pool of Bethany. Uh, I'm sorry, Bethesda. <laughs> he didn't send him to the pool of Bethesda. He sent him clear across Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam, which was their holy water. It was a baptismal font. Made him wash in there and thus desecrate their holy water. And then made him come back to report to him. And in doing so, he went three Sabbath day's journeys. He deliberately broke five Sabbath laws. That's, and I, I would love to collect all the places where I think Jesus is stabbing at the heart of Babylonian law. One place that's very obvious. Um, Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where did he get that? Well, three times in the Old Testament. That must have been where he got it. That's not its origin. Its origin is the Code of Hammurabi. Now, Hammurabi never stated it in so many words, but it was everyone who studies ancient Near Eastern law knows that the Code of Hammurabi is what we would call lex talionis, law of retaliation. It's built on that principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, the reason the Old Testament uses it three times is not as a principle that you're supposed to use across the board, but rather it modifies a particular law so that it is not abused. In other words, it's to limit only one eye for an eye, and not the whole face. So when Jesus says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's attacking the foundation stone of Babylonian law. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is the cheek for cheek of Jesus. But if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak as well. In other words, eye for eye. Don't retaliate. It's not my eye for your eye. It's just take the other eye. 
a totally different concept. So these are the things that Babylon came to emphasize. Now, the question is, of course, what am I going to do with that information? Um, is it time to run for the hills? Stop paying taxes? Um, drop out of sight in the, from the economy and don't have anything to do with the government and just disobey every law on the land? That is not what I'm here to say. What is Babylon in terms of Revelation? Sometimes in Revelation, the best way to know of something is to know its antithesis. What is the opposite of Babylon in Revelation? There's two cities in Revelation. What's the other one? New Jerusalem. What does the New Jerusalem represent? Chapter 19. Well, that, that denotes the second coming, and maybe we should go to, um, yes, here we go, chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down from, of, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the husband? Christ. Who's the bride? The church. So the New Jerusalem represents God's people, God's loyal, true people, the people who know him as he really is. What does Babylon represent? Apostate people? The people who claimed to know God, but really don't? We'll, we'll use that as kind of a working hypothesis, and it'll get sharper as we move through this whole concept of what Babylon is. Now, why would I go into the history of Babylon to deal with this? If, if Babylon is a religious entity, why would I deal with that? Well, it dawned on me, that what we do in society shapes our view of God, doesn't it? So what happened in Babylonian religion is this. They moved from a picture of God who was basically not so angry to a God who is vengeful. Why? Because by adopting those three things, they came to see God as the ultimate, the gods, I should say, because they worship more than one, as the ultimate economists, the ultimate lawyers, and the ultimate kings. They came to see the heavenly assembly as modeling their earthly one. They came to represent the gods as like themselves. And all of their mythologies, I wish we had the time to read one of them that so graphically portrays this, the story of Marduk, known as the Babylonian creation. It graphically portrays what happens to people's religion when dominated by these systems of thought and government. So, when Israel comes out of Egypt, what are they? They're a theocracy. Now, theocracy does not mean that they tack God onto government. It means that God has the reins in his hands. It means that everything that, in terms of governance, comes ultimately from God. And almost directly Originally, God came directly to Sinai, and the only reason he spoke through Moses is because the people were so terrified they begged for someone in between. And Moses makes that very clear in Deuteronomy. So it was directly God-driven. So they end up in the land of Canaan and ultimately say, God, we want a king like the nations around us. And God says, uh-uh, <laughs> I don't want that. Why didn't he want that? Well, if you look at 1 Samuel 8, where the story is found. You remember Samuel, Samuel starts wailing to God, they've rejected me. And God says, no, they haven't rejected you. This is what they've always done. They have rejected me from being king over them. Oh, so God wanted to be a king over them. Well, when, when you are in Rome, you speak as the Romans do, don't you? And when you are speaking to Babylonians, you speak Babylonian, and God had to speak to his people in Babylonian because they couldn't conceive of him as not a king and still being their God. So he said, they rejected me from being king over them. Now you shall tell them what the ways of their king who will rule over them shall be. And so Samuel launches into a great description of what the king will be. Verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. Why didn't God want them to have a king? It's abusive. God never intended that anyone rule over another, and more than that, he knew that once they had a king, they would view him as like that king. And God would become pictured as an abusive tyrant. And that's exactly what happened during the monarchy. Who was it that led them to offer their children as sacrifices? It was kings. And I do believe there must have been a correlation in ancient times. Some anthropological studies have seemed to have borne this out. That kings may have started this ritual of human sacrifice of their children because they knew God didn't want them to rule. And it was their way of getting rulership and thinking that they could buy off God by offering one of their children. So this is the distortion that comes in. Because of this, our whole value system changed. We no longer saw ourselves as worth what was inside. We no longer saw God as worth who he really was inside, his character. In fact, Ellen White makes the graphic point that the fall of Lucifer led him to want God's power, but not his character. And that truly is the whole paradigm shift from character, from morality, from true inner spirituality, we have shifted then to power. And we tend to see God as a powerful person on top who has all the controls, who does everything by might and power, instead of by the spirit of truth. That is Babylonianism. Now, once then you have this kind of system and you plant it onto God, and you say God is like a king, an economist, and a lawyer, and he runs the universe like the Babylonians ran their governments, you have something ideologically that is going to lead to something else. And I'd like to go back now to Revelation 18. What does it mean? And, and this comes right out of the second angel, too. Remember the second angel's message, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What does that mean? What is her fornication? We'll start with that. Um, In a, a sentence where you have of, 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 it's usually good to start from the end and move backwards. Then you find out where you are. Um, what is Babylon's fornication? Well, look at um, verse 3. The middle part. After it says that, it says, And kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Now, early Adventist pioneers took that to mean a union of church and state. Now, that's not theocracy. Israel had a theocracy, a God-driven nation. Babylon had union of church and state. The priests and the king worked together. In fact, the priests often had more power than the king in Babylon. Um, And every year there was a New Year's rite that um, kind of ensured that, where the priest, the high priest, led the king in before the god Marduk, who was the patron god of Babylon, made him kneel, made him hand over his scepter, his crown, and his outer clothes that gave him royalty. And then the priest took a staff and smote the king on the cheek. And if tears came to the king's eyes, that meant that Marduk was not angry with the king. But if no tears came to his eyes, that meant that Marduk was very angry with the king and probably within the next year the king would be killed. 
So if the priest didn't like the king, he could only give him a slight tap. Then the king had to be a good actor. So that's the kind of scheme you have going on in Babylon. In fact, during the Assyrian period, it got almost humorous. Um, the priests controlled the kingship, and the, uh, so did their prophets, um, to the point where the, it seems that the kings were in a bit of agony. At one point, you see, the way they told the future of the king was through use of omens. And they would open up a sheep and look at its organs, particularly its liver, because they understood intelligence to be in the intelligence of the gods to be in the blood, and the liver was the bloodiest organ. So they would look at the liver, and if the liver was deformed in any way, they had long lists of what the different deformations meant. And this meant one thing, and the gallbladder was tilted a certain way. It meant that the gods were angry with the king, and, and soon the armies would come from that direction and wipe the king out, and so on. The eclipse was an event where it was considered that the gods were very angry with the king. And uh, if a bunch of omens lined up against the king in Assyria, the king had to do something. In one case, we have a letter to a king, a Syrian king from the priest, telling him that he had to shave all the hair off his body and offer it to the gods. Well, that wouldn't be so bad in our day and age when we have nice razors and shaves and uh, and uh, shavers. But in those ancient times, um, they had rather crude equipment. And the king wrote a protesting letter back, please, isn't there something else I can do to appease the gods? Um, in some cases, it was deemed so serious that they would take a gardener or some inferior person and set him on the throne for 100 days, maybe less, in some cases less. And what would happen is the king would then go off into exile, and for that 100 days, the king, the substitute king, whom they called substitute king, would perform all the actions of the king. At the end of the 100 days, they would take that substitute king out with his wife and execute them so that the gods would know that they had killed the king. That's the kind of union of church and state you have in ancient Mesopotamia. Not a theocracy. Now, I agree with the early pioneers. I think this is the union of church and state, but there is something that precedes that union. That union cannot happen in a vacuum. And it's what I call the ideological union of church and state. It happens when God becomes, comes to be seen as like an earthly despot. And if you look at things that are shaping in our world today, you can see that ideology at work many places of our country to bring the same thing about. In fact, why have we had in Christendom in the last 20 years a rise in emphasis on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God as perceived by Calvin? It is because this ideology is at work. Um, that doctrine is not historically linked to Adventism at all. We, our origins come out of Methodism and, and the English Baptists. We have very few ties to Calvin. And uh, we, we weren't intended to just stick with Methodism and Baptists. We were to go on and learn more and more about God. So what we have here is the potential for ideology to work in such a way that it prepares the way for an actual physical union of church and state. And that is deemed fornication. Now, why fornication? I, I hope you'll forgive me. Um, I'm going to have to get a little bit into a path you might not want to go. But I had to read a book for my doctoral program. It was not my choice. I assure you of that. It was called Sex and Eroticism in Ancient Mesopotamia. I kind of gulped and went home. I got the book. I, I originally interlibrary loaned it because I thought maybe I didn't want to buy it. And I let, made the mistake of taking it in my office and putting it on my desk. And a student walked in, saw the title, and just about fell over. And I assured her, this was not my choice. This is not for Bible class, you understand. Um, so I went and got my own copy and sat home and read it. 
and I found something extremely helpful and enlightening. There was an ancient rite, sometimes called the sacred marriage rite, between the king and a goddess. This was supposed to link kingship to divinity. And for years, scholars called that the sacred marriage rite. It happened at the New Year's festival. Uh, some courtesan would be chosen to go to bed with the king for the night, and she would be representing the goddess, Ishtar. And they would go into the sacred place and maybe spend a week together. Well, the scholar who wrote the book I had to read flat out said it was not a marriage rite. It was simply fornication. And as I read the book further, she noted that the relationship of this king to this woman was not a love relationship at all. It was a legal relationship. And my eyes got open. I teach Introduction to Christian Ethics. And every quarter I talk to young people about why fornication is wrong. And it opened my eyes to realize that the biblical definition of fornication is a physical, externalistic union without a love and trust relationship that leads to lifelong commitment. It is a form of legalism. I tell my students that, and they just about fall, fall to the floor. They can't imagine that fornication is legalism. But it is. So what we're looking at here is a legal relationship between religion and kingship. We're dealing now with a whole system that is not at all built on love and trust, but rather is built on simply legal formalities. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll get out of you all I can for my own selfish needs. That's why fornication is used here. It's an appropriate means. Because once you unite church and government, you have that kind of arrangement. You have definitely embedded in the minds of everyone a totally legalistic God who demands externalistic control. And the way you make people be good is to tell them how to obey and how to worship. And that's what Revelation 18 is pointing us to. Of course, that's fulfilled in Revelation 13, is it not? So, if that's fornication, what is this wrath here? Well, if you look at Revelation 14, there's an interesting contrast. You have the same words, all nations drink, she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then you have verse 9, that those who, who worship the beast in its image and receive the mark on their foreheads or in their hands will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured out unmixed into the cup of his anger. It sounds like God's wrath is worse than Babylon's wrath, huh? Well, let's look at this a little bit. What does it mean, unmixed? Isn't it the opposite of fornication? Unmixed? It means pure. If you understand that you're dealing with the union of ideological union between God and kingship, then you can better understand that God's wrath is not mixed with any ideology belonging to kingship. It has none of the abusive qualities, the tyranny, the oppression, the slavery, that goes with kingship. God's wrath is not Babylonian wrath. It is not mixed. It is not fornicated. Therefore, it is God's pure wrath. And that's where you need to go to Romans and all those other places that talk about what God's wrath is, the hiding of the Father's countenance and all that, and plug it in here. This is the truth about God's wrath versus Babylon's wrath. So what is Babylon's wrath? Well, what happens when you have a king who wants more and more power? Remember the story of Haman and Mordecai? Haman was so mad at Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Why? 
because he wanted power equal to the king. He wanted to be next to the king, and Mordecai was in between. You see, what happens when a person wants power, whether he be king or not, is that it's very easy to make him mad. It's very easy to make him angry. There's a text for that, Proverbs 16, 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and whoever is wise will appease it. Ancient kings were known to be angry, and there is a direct correlation in ancient Mesopotamia between the development of kingship and the development, subsequent development of an angry deity needing to be appeased. The two go hand in hand. What is the wine? Well, that should be a little easier. What does wine symbolize in John? Jesus' blood, the atonement, the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, early pioneers said that the wine represented false doctrine. That's fine. That's good, even. Because do you think Babylon had the pure wine? <laughs> no, this is her fornication, so it's not pure. It's impure. It's, it's not unmixed. It's mixed. So what is the Babylonian view of atonement? And that's what I find so interesting. To the extent that kingship became dominating force in Mesopotamia, you have a corresponding belief in the wrath of the gods who are constantly angry and must be appeased. And everything in Babylonian religion as it developed, developed around that concept. You had ways to decide whether the gods were going to be angry, were angry, had been angry, and you had ways to cure them of their anger. You had all kinds of priests, some to chant soothing prayers, some to burn incense, some to offer sacrifices, some to feed them, clothe them, dress them, everything. Now turn to eight, chapter 18 of Revelation and verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, slaves, and human lives. If, you're, if you have, like most versions you have, that is human souls. What are these things doing here in chapter 18? Do you know what this means? I didn't. When I came to this, I tried and tried to figure out what is going on here. And finally one day I wrote these elements out and I discovered a pattern. Things go together in groups. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls is group one. Fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet is group two. All kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, Marble goes in another group. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense goes in another group. Wine, olive oil, choice flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep goes in another group. And then the final group are the horses, chariots, and slaves. What is this talking about? Well, all those articles have to do with kingship. Do they not? You have... The beautiful embellishment of kingly palaces, the clothing of the kings, the wonderful sense of kingship, um, the articles of that made up their palaces, the food, and finally everything under a king. The king needed to be a king. He needed horses, chariots to go to war because that was what made him king, and he needed slaves. Now, let's take that a step further. In ancient Mesopotamia, though, these, all, these same articles were combined with temple. These were the ways to feed, clothe, humor, placate the gods. Incense was used in worship. 
because it has a soothing effect. It puts the person in a stupor. So they assumed if they burned enough before God, they would put the gods in a stupor and they wouldn't cause them so much trouble or be so angry. And so you have the paradigm of that entire model worked out. That religion consisted of whatever it took to make gods who were like kings not be angry. Many, many of the hymns and the prayers are along those lines. In fact, in the New Year's festival, you remember the episode of the king I talked about. Well, there was another, there were other episodes um, that interestingly parallel the Day of Atonement, and if I had time, I would go over that with you. But one interesting element was that after they brought Marduk back into the temple, after they cleansed the temple, they had to bring him back to his temple. All the way there, they chanted, Be appeased, Marduk, be appeased, over and over again. Of all the deities of Mesopotamia, Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, was the most angry, tyrannical, despotic being of all the gods. He fits everything in a model of a god who all of this points to a, a belief in religion, a belief in God, whereby he is a king who must be placated, appeased, in order to be worshipped, in order to survive, in order to be saved. And particularly how it comes to make atonement. See, in, in Babylonian religion, human beings were created solely to be slaves of the gods. That was their sole purpose for existence. The Bible teaches no such thing. We were created in God's image with the power to think and to do individuality. And the Sabbath, interestingly enough, plays a major role in the establishment of individuality because God commanded that everyone rest. Even the animals get to rest on Sabbath. Now, when I talk to my students, I remind them that in the ancient times, rest was a very uh, prized possession. <laughs> they didn't get much of it. And particularly in Mesopotamia, only the gods got to rest. Human beings weren't given that privilege. They were slaves. It's in the Bible that the Sabbath stands as a monument that we are not God's slaves. We are his friends. And we rest because he rested. That is, he has honored us, the infinite one, with the privilege of resting with him and sharing in that rest. And the word rest in the Bible does not have the connotations of appeasement, whereas in Babylon, to rest the heart meant to appease the gods. That means, I believe at the end of time, that the Sabbath is going to stand as a monument to a God who is not a legalist, nor a king, nor an economist, but a God who wants a relationship with us as with friends, where we can sit down in fellowship and, and worship him knowing that we don't have to be afraid. There is nothing to be afraid of. I hope you'll excuse me if I share with you a little story that I wrote. It's a make-believe story, but it illustrates a point. Before I do that, I want to just say one thing. That coming out of Babylon is not coming out of a particular system or church merely. It may mean that. But everyone has to come out of Babylon. Everyone has to come out of the wrong picture of God, the paradigm that Satan created. Everyone has to see the truth about God. And before we get from here to there, this message has to be clear. It has to brighten the earth with its glory in order for us to really know him as he really is. But the angels came to God one day very much concerned. God asked them, what did you do today? They replied, We visited the kindergarten children's divisions of the Adventist Sabbath schools. Did you enjoy that? asked God. Tears came to their eyes. They spent the morning helping the children make crowns out of gold paper and pasting stars on them to wear. Then they taught the children to sing, I will wear a crown in my father's house. God smiled. Did you enjoy that? 
The angels looked down. Not really. Why not? Well, began one, we know that you've made promises about everyone wearing a crown up here, but we've been discussing it ever since. And? And we don't understand. God, why would you bring up here any human inventions? Sinful human beings created crowns and kingship. Kingship is evil. You never wanted a human being to rule another. You don't wear a crown, not like the crown of jewels or any other earthly type of crown. Why should they have crowns up here? God smiled more broadly. All will wear a crown in their father's house. Silence settled down as the angel sat thinking. Then one of the quieter ones, known for depth of thought, spoke up. If everyone wears a crown, then they all will be kings. A murmur broke out among the angels. Then no one will be a king, said another. That's right, said God. When all are kings, there are no kings, only friends. So teach them that song, said God. Teach them that they will all be kings up here, and thus no one will rule, and we will all be friends. Why are you putting stars in their crowns, asked an angel. Stars, said another. You know, God, the people down there claim that the stars represent the number of people they've won to you, and that the more stars they've won, the better they are. That's the problem, said a third. Now we're bringing the very roots of pride into the new Jerusalem. God looked sad for an instant. It's all a perversion, he said. There won't be any stars in the sense they think of. When everyone is king, all are friends, and the faces of friends they will have made because of me will be pictured in their crowns. The faces of friends they have valued as persons. The friends they, who mean something more to them than a mere baptism, a series of Bible studies, and a certificate of membership. Then where did they get this idea of stars, asked an angel. What is a star, asked God. The angel smiled. A star is a sun, but to the Babylonians the suns were gods, and so the term came to represent deity. In the Bible, though, it was changed to represent us angels. Are you angels' sons, asked God. No, we're messengers who give people good news, who protect them as much as they let us, who help them see you more clearly. Then you shine, don't you, said God thoughtfully. Hmm, yes, it's all symbolism. But why stars in the crowns for the faces of friends? Because then, said God, then shall the righteous shine like the sun in their heavenly Father's realm. Silence hovered once again, and an angel murmured, Everyone will wear a crown. Each will be a king. None will be kings. All will be friends. Everyone will shine like the sun in their heavenly Father's realm. Only the birds, crickets, frogs, and soaring lions broke the reverie, until one angel softly asked, God, I have lots of friends down there among those human beings. I love them and I can't wait to have them up here. May I, he hesitated, may I have a crown in which to put their faces? <laughs>